Hi, everybody. Thanks for joining us today for another SWARB webinar. I have here with me Dr. Taylor Bechamp. He's a fifth-year resident at the Western Emergency Medicine Program. However, he's graduating and going to be staying locally here in London just a month from now. So, Dr. Bechamp, thanks so much for joining us today. Hi, and welcome, everyone. As Dr. Valdez mentioned, I'm one of the fifth-year EM residents here in London. I can't wait to dive into this interesting topic with everyone. So, Dr. Bechamp, can you tell us why you chose this topic to chat with us about today? Thanks for asking. This topic I chose because it was inspired by my time I spent in South Africa recently for a medical elective, where in Cape Town I managed more than 50 patients with penetrating chest trauma. And I know that here in London we're starting to see a rise in similar cases, so I wanted to dive into that with our paramedics. Okay, let's start with a particularly interesting case that I saw in South Africa, and I'll spin it to apply to our population. As we know, penetrating chest trauma is becoming more common here as well. So we'll start with a case. You get called code 4 at 2.45 in the morning to downtown London. You get told it's a male who's short of breath. It's been a busy night downtown with multiple calls for assaults and altercations already. To continue the case, you arrive on scene and there is a swarm of people hovering over a late teens male patient. You notice a trail of blood on the sidewalk leading up to this group. So Dr. Bashamp, what do you do in this situation? Okay, first things first, you need to focus on your own safety. So do not approach unless you feel it is safe to do so. Make sure you call for police backup if you feel you need that. Once safe, ensure that you fully assess your patient. And Dr. Bashamp, what do you mean by fully assess? Well, what I mean by that is that you need to fully undress and expose to find any and all areas of hemorrhage in a patient like this. People are not always forthcoming or even aware of all of their injuries. Okay, so you and your partner undress the patient in the safety of the back of the ambulance. And what you find is bilateral anterior penetrating chest wounds. And Dr. Bechamp, what do you do next? Well, the next most important step in this case would be to obtain vitals on your patient and complete a thorough but expedited exam. So in the back of the truck, you take your patient's vitals. You get a heart rate of 130, saturation of 95% on room air, a blood pressure of 110 on 70, a respiratory rate of 25, and the patient's GCS is noted to be 15. On your exam, you notice the bilateral anterior chest wounds, and now you also notice bilateral sucking chest wounds on the patient's back as well. You also notice decreased air entry bilaterally, a midline trachea, and bilateral neck subcutaneous emphysema. And Dr. Bechamp, you highlighted a really important piece there, is that you're always checking the back for other injuries. So you don't want to get carried away and think that the two anterior injuries are the only ones. You always want to be looking for the extra injuries, as you alluded to. And Dr. Bechamp, what does the sub-Q emphysema tell you? Well, the subcutaneous emphysema can be an indication of a pneumothorax, an infiltration of air underneath the dermal layers of the skin. And what that feels like on exam is like Rice Krispies that you're squeezing with your hands under the skin. And why is it important to mention the trachea is midline? Well, in this case, a deviated trachea can indicate that the patient has a tension pneumothorax and that pushes the trachea away from the affected lung. So 
So Dr. Beauchamp, what management should paramedics consider with this type of presentation, as we talked about, is more and more uncommon, especially in London here right now? You always start with managing the ABCs first, but you also need to weigh any management provided on scene with the need for rapid transport. And Dr. Beauchamp, how would you suggest your approach to managing the ABCs? Well, yeah, I'll walk you through that on our next slide. Okay, so we're back to the case slide there with the same information that was provided on a previous slide. Dr. Beauchamp, take it away. Yeah, so first thing, you're going to focus on the ABCs. So A, this patient is GCS 15 and protecting their airway. B, you have a saturation of 95%. You can consider O2 for a goal target of oxygen between 92 and 95, and you have a respiratory rate of 25. Dr. Beisham, what do you make of that respiratory rate? Well, it's a bit high by itself, but in the picture of a penetrating chest trauma with decreased air entry and subcutaneous emphysema, it is concerning. All right, so continuing on with B and C, you mentioned earlier that sub-Q emphysema is a sign of potential pneumothorax. Would paramedics necessarily jump to a needle thoracostomy at this time? The indication per the tension pneumothorax medical directive is pre-arrest or VSA and absent or severely diminished breath sounds on the affected sides or side. At this time, the patient is normotensive, has a normal GCS, so this does not meet the criteria for pre-arrest. But this is definitely something that we would want to be prepared for and be able to act upon quickly should the patient deteriorate and become pre-arrest. So ACP paramedics are preparing their equipment and readying for needle decompression, or decompressions, as you mentioned, as required. What about these sucking chest wounds? What management would you suggest for this B category for both our PCP and ACP paramedics? Well, there are these anterior and posterior sucking chest wounds which need to be addressed. What I would recommend in this case would be a one-way valve dressing, and Dr. Beauchamp, what are some options for a one-way valve dressing? Are they mandated to be carried? The equipment standards state that the, all ACP trucks must carry one chest drain valve that is transparent and lets air and fluids out of the chest cavity without any reflux back into the chest cavity. So to our paramedics who are listening out there, both ACP and PCP, Check to make sure exactly what you carry and how many. Per the equipment standards, as we heard, the ACP vehicles must have one. But here, there are multiple wounds that need to be addressed. PCPs may have access to this equipment as well if the service carries them. But again, it's not necessarily mandated by the ministry. Okay. And in this case, as you can see by this picture, appropriate supplies were not available. So the paramedics in this case applied a kind of MacGyvered one-way valve dressing using a tagoderm for transport to hospital. And we'll see on our next slide what is available in some of our trucks here. So here you can see that on our trucks we have the Asherman valve dressing that allows airflow out but does not allow airflow back into the chest. And as we mentioned in the last slide, the requirement is for ACP trucks only to carry one, and there's no requirements for PCP trucks to carry any. Do you have any recommendations on what can be done in a pinch to simulate these Asherman chest seal dressings? Yeah. So in the photo description here, uh, you can see an improvised chest seal. This photo is from adventuredoc.net. As you can see, when you cut the finger portion 
off of a pair of gloves, uh, you can then reposition the thumb to be in the midline and allow for a solid base to secure with tape to the body. You then cut the tip of the thumb portion to allow a one-way valve to let air out, but not back in. This is some great MacGyvering and synonymous to what we taught at our ACP hands-on day for chest seal improvisation and what to do if you don't have enough or functioning commercial valves. Dr. Bichamp, are there any words of caution to this setup? Yes, and let me get back to our case to really demonstrate what the cautions are. Sounds pretty ominous. Okay, back to our case, our patient's condition deteriorates over the next five minutes. You now have a set of vitals showing a heart rate of 130, a blood pressure of 85 on 40, you're 90% on room air, our respiratory rate is now 30, and our GCS has declined to 14. Re-examine the patient, which you should always do when you notice a change in condition, and you notice massive bilateral subcutaneous emphysema, and the patient now has strider. You still note that his trachea is midline. And Dr. Bechamp, what else should you reassess besides the patient? Although, of course, that is first and foremost. You should always reassess your treatment strategies thus far to make sure that they are still working. Do you remember those MacGyver dressings that we applied earlier? So in addition, you're concurrently managing C. We didn't even get to C yet in our ABCs, but again, it's not a totally linear assessment of management. So you would have already moved or have your partner start moving to starting an IV to have vascular access. So on your exam, reassessing the bandages that you had placed over the patient's sucking chest wounds earlier, you notice that they have become saturated and occlusive and this likely has worsened the patient's bilateral pneumothoraces. When you have an improper dressing applied or a properly applied dressing that becomes saturated and now occlusive, air is no longer able to escape the wound and this can lead to a tension pneumothorax. So what do you suggest then, Dr. Bichon? Well, I suggest that you never place an occlusive dressing over a sucking chest wound. And if you are using a one-way valve on a sucking chest wound, it is very important to frequently reassess that dressing and make sure that bleeding or other causes have made that dressing become occlusive. So Dr. Bishop, back to our case. What happened? What did the paramedics do? Well, they have two options depending on their level of training. One, for the ACPs, they can perform a needle decompression for a possible tension pneumothorax. And number two, you can remove the dressings that have become occlusive and see if the patient's condition improves. What if this doesn't help and the patient remains hypotensive, not moving any air, and ends up in extreme distress? For PCPs, continue to support the ABCs as possible, call the receiving hospital, notify them that the patient's condition has changed, remove any occlusive dressings, and remove any positive pressure that you may be applying, if possible. And why do you suggest removing the positive pressure? Positive pressure can worsen a tension pneumothorax. And what about for our ACP colleagues? Well, in this case, it sounds like there's potential for actually a bilateral tension pneumothorax with a massive subcutaneous emphysema, worsening air entry, hypotension, distress and declining GCS, 
Uh, so this is where you would consider them pre-arrest, and you can consider using your tension pneumothorax medical directive. All right, and let's look at that in the next slide. So just to review what a tension pneumothorax is, uh, it's a severe condition that results when air is trapped inside the pleural space under pressure. It displaces the mediastinal structures and compromises cardiopulmonary function. So it's truly an obstructive shock picture. The heart can't pump. Yes, uh, this has got to be on your list of causes of obstructive shock, and it should be suspected in an unstable patient with penetrating injury alongside cardiac tamponade as well as hemorrhagic shock. Well, I guess that brings us to the management then. ACPs have a medical directive for tension pneumothorax. We're going to cover that. But for our PCP colleagues, you can certainly encounter this issue, and there's more to talk about in penetrating than just tension pneumothorax. Okay, let's quickly go through the medical directive. It's pretty straightforward in what the indications are. Suspected tension pneumothorax and critically ill or VSA and absent or severely diminished breath sounds on the affected side. The conditions are hypotension or VSA and the contraindications are none. And just a reminder, there is no longer a mandatory patch point for this procedure. Next, let's take a look at the two different sites that needle thoracostomy can be performed. It may be performed at the second intercostal space in the midclavicular line or the anterior axillary line at the fourth or fifth intercostal space. So as you can see on our slide above, um, A is the second intercostal space and B is at that fourth or fifth intercostal space. And Dr. Beauchamp, we taught at our ACP hands-on day back in fall 2021 that the preferred location is the lateral site, but let's quickly review the literature as to why that is. Okay, so this study in a trauma journal looked at the optimal site on cadavers performing pre-hospital needle thoracostomy. And in this study, they noted that the fifth intercostal space, anterior axillary line, was better localized and decompressed than the second intercostal space midclavicular line. They also noted that the fifth intercostal space was rated as easier to perform than the second intercostal space, and they noted that the time to decompression was the same for the two locations. So the fourth and fifth anterior axillary line had the thinnest chest wall on the cadavers as well as the lowest failure rate. Now, Dr. Beauchamp, as all of our listeners know, things are not always as easy in the pre-hospital world. Clinical and transport constraints may support the second intercostal midclavicular line location over the fourth intercostal space anterior axillary line in some situations. So as a reminder, per the medical directive, you can use either, whatever is best in the clinical situation. All right, so as we reviewed the needle thoracostomy sites and introduced the new site and landmarking at that inaugural ACP hands-on day in fall 2021, here are the landmarks. Dr. Beauchamp, can you take us through the two sites and anatomic landmarking? Yeah, so we've already discussed where the two different sites are, and I just wanted to talk about a little bit of strategy while you're performing the procedure. So whether you're doing the second or the fourth intercostal space, it's important that you try to enter above the rib as this avoids the neurovascular bundles in that area. And you want to direct the needle towards the patient's head after you puncture the pleura. And that's to avoid that neurovascular bundle, is that correct? 
Yes. Okay, great. Thank you. For this procedure, you have to think about the position of your patient. Optimal positioning would have the head of the stretcher at 30 to 60 degrees, and you're going to have the arm on the affected side placed over the head of the patient. And then just as a reminder, this is the positioning change for the anterior axillary site. So if you're doing the second intercostal space midclavicular line, you don't have to go ahead with this positioning. All right, let's jump back to the case. Yeah, after you reassess your patient, it was noted that your dressings had become occlusive and the patient likely had a tension pneumothorax. And Dr. Bichamp, we already spoke about the fact that ACP scope is the needle decompression, but what about our PCP colleagues? What can PCPs do in this type of situation? So a PCP in this situation would want to remove the occlusive dressings. They would support the patient's ABCs, use supplemental oxygen, they can give an IV fluid bolus as required, and you have to focus on a rapid transport to the closest hospital. And Dr. Bichamp, any words of wisdom on transport of these patients? Yes, we'll dive into that on the next slide. All right, the Field Trauma Triage Standards, or the FTTS, was designed specifically to address getting these patients to the right location where they can best be managed. So as all of our listeners know, the FTTS is a four-step process, with the lead trauma hospital being the destination if within 30 minutes or new in BLS-PCS 3.4 within 60 minutes if agreed upon between the local patient priority system, aka if agreed upon between the hospital service policy. For the sake of brevity, we'll continue to reference the 30-minute cutoff. I won't take you through every possible nuance of the FTTS, but let's highlight the process. So step one is the physiologic criteria. Our patient with hypotension would meet this step to go to the lead trauma hospital, as long as it was within the transport time. Step two is the anatomic criteria. So certain anatomic injury findings, including penetrating injuries to the head, neck, torso, and proximal extremities. And we'll come back to this. Step three are mechanisms of injury criteria. So for example, pedestrian or cyclist thrown, run over, or struck by an automobile traveling greater than or equal to 30 kilometers an hour. And finally, step four, the special criteria, for example, pregnancy greater than or equal to 20 weeks gestation with traumatic injury. Dr. Bishop, despite this patient meeting step one, tell us a little bit more about step two, the anatomic criteria, and the role of penetrating chest injuries. So utilizing the FTTS, if a patient has penetrating injuries to the neck, head, torso, or proximal extremities, uh, they should be transported to the LTH if transport time is less than 30 minutes, as you can see in the red box on this slide. And Dr. Dr. Bechamp, what happens if the patient arrests en route? If the patient arrests, you still transport the patient to the LTH, despite the lack of vital signs. So with this particular subset of patients with this penetrating injuries as listed in the anatomic criteria, if you're within 30 minutes of transport to the lead trauma hospital, you still go to the lead trauma hospital despite the lack of vital signs. So you stabilize and support as best you can and get rolling to the lead trauma hospital if you're within 30 minutes for PCP. ACP can consider a needle decompression should the patient meet the indications of none of the contraindications. Where did this patient end up? Yeah, so the resolution of our case, after receiving bilateral needle decompressions, the patient's condition stabilized. 
They were transported uh, to the lead trauma hospital in the area, stabilized further at the hospital, and had definitive management for their stab wounds via thoracic surgery. And after a short stay in hospital, they were discharged in stable condition. Dr. Bichamp, thanks so much for joining us today and taking us through some pearls regarding penetrating chest wounds. It's definitely a lived experience for you in your time in South Africa. And as we've talked about, it seems like this type of violence is increasing locally here too. So thank you very much for the case, explanation, and pearls. What would you like to leave the audience with? Yeah, thank you for having me. Let me walk everyone through some of the pearls that I think are important takeaways from this presentation. In the setting of penetrating trauma, always manage ABCs and remember to fully expose the patient to make sure that all injuries are found, like this case uh, having the injuries on the patient's back as well as the front. For sucking chest wounds, they can be dramatic, but they are rarely life-threatening as the, the sound of the air coming in and out means that it's unlikely that the patient's developing a tension pneumothorax as air is escaping the chest naturally. If you do choose to dress a penetrating chest wound, you need to make sure that you're not using an occlusive dressing uh, and you need frequent reassessments for your one-way valve dressings to make sure that they do not become occlusive by being saturated with blood. You can consider leaving these wounds open if they are sucking and blowing in and out. If signs of tension pneumothorax occur, ACPs can consider a needle thoracostomy, and we reviewed the two potential sites that they can use. And for PCPs, you would support the patient and initiate rapid transport while removing any of the occlusive dressings or dressings that may have become occlusive. Make sure you remember to utilize your FTTS which is for transporting patients with penetrating chest injuries to the lead trauma hospital if your transport time is less than 30 minutes, regardless of vital signs, so even in the setting of cardiac arrest. All right. Well, thanks again, Dr. Bechamp, for joining us and for bringing us all of your intel based on your experience down in a South Africa elective. And thanks to our audience for joining us today. Thank you, Dr. Belbus, for having me here in the studio for this recording. I really enjoyed this experience, and thank you for everyone at home who's taken the time out of their day to listen to this talk on penetrating chest trauma. I hope that there are some valuable takeaways that you can apply to your practice here. All right. Thanks, everybody. Take care.